Welcome to the 212th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with thriller author Shane Kuhn, author of The Intern's Handbook and Hostile Takeover. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Shane Kuhn, author of the thriller novel Hostile Takeover. Kuhn's first novel, The Intern's Handbook, received a lot of great critical praise and was a bestseller. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Well, can you read the first two? Uh, can you read two or three pages from your new novel, Hostile Takeover? Yes, no problem. Uh, this is from Chapter Four. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to get today to join. I'm sorry, I never got your names. That's because we didn't give them to you. I said coldly. Come on, Padre. Let's move it along. Alice said. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to join this couple in holy matrimony. Our wedding was a relatively small affair. Like most professional killers, we had no family or friends of any kind, so the guest list was a snap. John, check. Alice, check. Non-denominational, guitar-playing, ex-convict minister who didn't ask a lot of questions, check. Smartly dressed hotel staffer poised to toss Juliet rose petals, and pop a bottle of 1907 Heidsick champagne, recovered from the Swedish freighter, Freyfeyan Freyf- Kopping, after it was sunk by a German U-boat in 1916, something old, upon completion of nuptials, check. All weddings should be like ours was. The bride and groom, solitary as their cake-topper doppelgangers, grinning before Yahweh in bespoke couture. Even though we spared the guest list, we spared no expense. The ceremony took place in the Ty Warner penthouse at the Four Seasons in Manhattan. For the price of one night's lodging in that room, you could feed and clothe several villages in Myanmar for a full year. Alice looked stunning in her handmade jet-black wedding gown, something new, that I had a goth seamstress fashion out of exotic military fabrics. It cost me a small fortune and nearly my pinky finger, but it was worth it. That dress made me want to cut my own heart out and bleed on the sacrificial stone to show my gratitude to the gods. And after all that, I couldn't wait to unceremoniously rip it off her. I was wearing a tuxedo I stole from a dead MI6 agent, possibly my best-dressed target, and a pair of Vietnam-era jungle combat boots I won in a card game before I killed a room full of Laotian flesh peddlers with a camp shovel. Alice wasn't into the boots, but I told her letting me wear them was the least she could do after she had tried several times in the last year to put a bullet in my head but only managed to hit my heel. She won up to me by wearing a pair of Alexander McQueen Titanic ballerina pumps she'd had fitted with a razor-sharp titanium stiletto heel that could lacerate Kevlar and punch through concrete. They were wickedly beautiful, and I couldn't help but wonder how they would look pointing at the ceiling. Do you take her to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do, Alice said. Seriously, I said, annoyed? It's not your turn. Why don't we try that again, the minister said. No, Alice glared. Don't ruin the moment, I said. I don't like the rest of those tired, played-out vows, Alice said. To having to hold in sickness and in health till death do his part, those, I inquired casually. Yep, she snapped, strangling her exquisite saffron crocus bouquet. Fine, what do you suggest? There's a very rare bottle of champagne that has waited patiently at the bottom of the ocean off the coast of Finland, 
for nearly 100 years for us to drink it, she began. We have actual kush fresh off the plane from Islamabad, and the main lobsters are going to kill each other if we don't kill them first. And let's not forget, I'm so horny I could fuck a mechanical bull. So with all of these urgent, more urgent matters, why do we need to go through this ritual nonsense? I do, I said. We're not there yet, the minister said, annoyed. Shh, Alice said, pressing her finger to his lips too hard and slightly cutting him with what I could see was a French manicured nail with a razor-sharp rose gold edge, adding an instant upgrade to my shoe fantasy. In the interest of expediting the fulfillment of that fantasy, I kissed the bride. The minister scowled and lit a cigarette while we made out like high school prom dates. I now pronounce you man and wife, hands everywhere groping outside voices. Okay, I'm out of here, the minister said. Congratulations, you two were made for each other. He took leave of us, along with the hotel staffers, and we took leave of our senses. Just think Bacchanal meets Masters and Johnson, meets Penthouse Letters, and he pretty much got the picture. After several hours of marital consummation, we put our beautiful wedding clothes back on and had a smoke on the terrace. Promise me we'll have sex like that for the rest of our lives, no matter how old, gray, and foul-smelling they are, she said. No way, I said. Maybe if we were chimpanzees on some kind of experimental military drug. Outside of that, I'd be dead in five years if we kept up this pace. Maybe that's my fiendish plan, to fuck you to death. Okay, I promise. We both laughed, mainly because the irony of the situation was as thick as our Sylvia Weinstock wedding cake and twice as sweet. I married the love of my life and former nemesis. We had the most beautiful wedding two totally disconnected psychopaths could possibly have had. We enjoyed unspeakable pleasures, and then it was time for the pièce de résistance, my wedding present to Alice. I opened the doors to the foyer, yes, the suite was that big, and revealed a massive, beautifully wrapped box about the size of a coffin. What is it, she said, licking her lips. Open it and find out. She tore off the wrapping paper and lifted the lid off the box. Her jaw dropped. Holy shit, John. That's only the beginning. Excuse me, she said, incredulous. This is a two-part present. What's part two? Are you sure you're ready, I asked coyly. Don't make me shoot you in your other foot. I looked at my watch. Twenty minutes and all will be revealed. Enough time for champagne. We popped the, sh- we popped the shipwreck... Ship- <laughs> Sorry. We popped the shipwrecked hydric and toasted. It tasted like unbridled optimism, with a gunpowder nose and a burnt lemon and kerosene finish. After we practically sucked the last drop out of the bottle, we kissed, tasting victory on each other's malevolent lips. And that's it. That's great. Well, if someone listening, if someone listening hasn't heard about Hostile Takeover yet, how would you describe your new novel? You know, it's it, how I describe it. It seems to be evolving every day, but I think I think the way I am, am really liking to describe it now is I really feel like it's an explosive love story. You know, because like the more the more I sort of think about the process that went into writing it, um, what I really gravitated to was John and Alice and their relationship. And when you read the book, you'll see that. The, the narrative really tracks uh, with their relationship. You know, there, there's a lot of plot. There are a lot of plot elements that, that are there along the way that move the story along. But if you look at it, you'll see that the narrative, narrative is really driven by their, by their love story. So that's what I would call it. I would call it an explosive love story. 
Gotcha. Well, well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing about John Lago, the protagonist of Hostile Takeover in your first novel, The Intern's Handbook? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to make it as brief as I can. I mean, basically, uh, for years, you know, I, I, I worked in, you know, film and television for many years. And for all of those years, including before that, I've always loved assassin stories. And I've seen, you know, most of the great assassin movies. And so I've been, I've been fairly obsessed with that genre and that type of character. So I always had, I was always motivated to write a great assassin character in, in the context of a great assassin story. But the problem was finding something unique. You know, that a lot of, this, this is, this is not a, uh, an uncommon story to tell. There are many, many, you know, books and movies about the, the subject and these types of characters. But for me, it was important that it would be a, a completely original character. So I, I tried and failed many times to, to sort of kick something like this off in, in my career as a writer and never, never really got anywhere until about, um, it was around just after like 2008 and the financial crises that we were all dealing with. Um, I became obsessed. I use the word obsessed a lot. I became obsessed with uh, corporate crime, and I think a lot of people did. You know, was in, in the movie business, everybody was you know trying to create television shows and movies about that that subject. Um, for me, it was it was interesting because as a as a, also a person who loves movies and books about organized crime, uh, it occurred to me that that corporate crime is the, is the most powerful and dangerous sort of cartel, if you will, in the world, because, you know, who else, the mafia isn't even capable of, of uh, pillaging an entire retirement fund and then getting packaged out with a $40 million severance package. So it's uh, thinking about that. I really wanted to do, um, I was actually working on a television show that was about that. It was about, um, about corporate, you know, basically, white collar, um, you know, people who decide to start this organized crime, um, family of their own and they're not even mafia. So, so I was working on that and, you know, as you're working on some, something like that with the, with the crime, sort of organized crime uh, paradigm, thinking about the different stratum of, of people involved in the organization from the bosses all the way down to the minions. And I started thinking about the minions because, like, the, the like interns themselves have always been kind of a funny thing to me. I've been an intern many times. And I always thought it was kind of a hilarious, weird position. So as I was thinking about this show, I thought, you know, what would the interns be doing, you know, in a, in this kind of a, in this kind of organized crime scenario? And uh, you know, I think the instinct for any most anybody would be that they're the minions. They're the ones who are going around doing the dirty work. But I actually thought more about it and I wanted to subvert that. I often like to do that within storytelling. So I basically wanted to empower them. I wanted to make them, you know, like not what you think they are. I wanted to make them kind of the people around the show. And that's when it clicked um, that they could be assassins because, you know, to me within that kind of organized crime scenario or just crime in general, I can't imagine a more powerful character than an assassin. I feel like, Assassins um, are very powerful for the same reason that I really like those characters, and that is because they they don't live by any rules. You know, they don't have to. You know, the the police are not a problem for them. You know, general society is not a problem for them. So that was the 
that was where it all clicked. And I thought, wow, okay, that could be cool if interns were assassins. Um, and then after that, it just kind of like really came together because I started to think about, uh, you know, like John, uh, you know, he, he came into my mind as the character. And it, at the time I pictured him as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> so he kind of, he kind of just developed in my head. Um, and that's kind of a, a one way that I like to write is I, it's kind of like method acting. I just start kind of like living in a character and thinking about what they would be doing about a lot of different scenarios. And it, it just kind of, it just kind of expanded from there because I felt like, you know, conceptually I had a great idea and then working on John, I really wanted him to be, I really did want him to be kind of a blank slate character who had to kind of invent his own life. And it just, it just evolved from there. So that it's kind of a long story, but it's kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the idea really comes out of like, the, it's kind of a love child between my love of assassin uh, stories and also you know, the concept of, of interns and internships. Right. So, so I know that you mentioned that you did work in film and TV. Um, yeah. Did, did the intern's handbook start out as a script? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, that's basically, it was kind of an interesting situation because I, I started outlining it as a script. And at the time, um, I was working on a project because I, I, I wor I've worked with a writing partner for years. And the t at the time we were working on a project and it was extremely frustrating. I mean, it was like one of the most frustrating things I've ever done, not even just work-wise or creatively, just like in general in life, it was one of the most frustrating time-wasting situations I've ever been in. <laughs> and so I was really like, I, I was at the time I was outlining interns, I was really down on the entertainment business. Cause I'd literally been like put through the ringer for this project and many promises were made. And of course I stupidly believed them, even though after years I, you know, experienced them never coming true. But it was really like, it was really a situation that seemed like something was going to happen. And in the end it just kind of, it just fizzled. I mean, literally like in one day it fizzled out. So I was, I was, I was really, um, I was really down on that business and I didn't, you know, it was, I was having a hard time outlining um, interns because I was thinking to myself, I don't want to just, you know, write this and then give it to some someone and hope that they like it. And then they show it to someone that we all hope likes it. And they show it to another person that we all hope likes it. You know, like this whole weird dysfunctional family tree that would have to sort of grow and come together, you know, for someone to want to actually make it into a movie. And, and I was just, I was, you know, I had sold scripts and I had sold pitches and the idea, because I love this idea so much, the idea of just turning it over to someone, even if I was paid and then, and then having zero control over it, having it just kind of like sit on a shelf, which a lot of things have done are doing right now. I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. So I, that was when I decided to, to write it as a book. And it was kind of scary because. I have written a book before, but it was years ago. It was like in, in when I was in film school, ironically, in the early nineties. And I've always been, I've always written journals and I've always, you know, worked on prose for years and years, but, but to actually sit down and write a novel was pretty daunting. Um, but basically like as soon as I, as soon as I got the courage to do it and sat down and did it, it was so fun and so enjoyable as opposed to everything I'd ever done in the movie business that it just, I wrote it really quickly. I wrote it in like 
I think I wrote the first draft in like 60 days, you know, because um, I was every night I was pounding away at this thing and, it was, and having a great time. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of another long story, I guess. Sure. <laughs> and and, and what, what was, what was the process at that point? Um, I mean, did you, did you have a literary agent or did you go to your film agent um, in terms of getting, yeah. getting the first one published, the intern's handbook? Yeah. What I did is I have a, I don't have an agent anymore um, because I just, I'm not a big believer in that for someone for writers, you know, I think they're, I think they're good for like packaging and things like right, that for right, agents yep. and actors, mm-hmm. but, but I do have a manager, um, mm-hmm. this guy, Brad Mendelson at Circle of Confusion. And, uh, so I went to, to Brad because I knew that he, I knew that he did a lot of work, um, you know, like in his, in his business, especially cause he works in television. Uh, you know, he did a lot of, you know, book acquisitions and options and things like that. Usually it was him. It was he was the one who was optioning authors' books. Right. But I, right. You know, I called him and I said, I said, hey man, I want to write a book. And he said, cool, okay. Uh, <laughs> so automatically though, he said, um, he said, you know, I've got the perfect person for you to talk to about this. Uh, this woman, Hannah Gordon, and I, he's done business with, with Hannah for years, and they're very close. Uh, professionally, and you know, she she was in New York at the time. She was, you know, she would do a trip to the West Coast a couple times a year to present material to him uh, for options, things like that. So, so I contacted, um, I ended up contacting her, and she's very nice and smart and professional and like just you know easygoing. And she just said, okay, you know, just write me a one pager, you know, sort of like outlining the concept and the character. And I did that immediately. I think I did. I think I turned that around in, the, in like six hours or something like that. Because I had all the material, you know, I just had mm-hmm. to like distill yeah. it down. So I sent, I sent her that. I actually sent her, oddly enough, I sent her two one pages because I had this other novel <laughs> um, that, I, that I also wanted to do. And she, and that one's more autobiographical, but she, she's like, I, I love both of these. You know, she's like, let's, let's, but she said, let's explore intern's handbook first um, because the other one is, as I said, is out of, somewhat out of autobiographical and it's a much more complicated, it's more of a uh, dramatic non, or like a dramatic nonfiction genre book. Right. So she's like, she's like, you know, okay, so to get you in, to get you started, let's, let's work on intern's a less complicated affair. Um, you know, it's, it's very close to what you've been doing in, certain, certain, uh, in terms of narrative structure. And so I did an outline for her and, uh, you know, she, she called me and she said, wow, that's like the most detailed outline I think an author has ever sent me. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent her like this 20 page beat by beat outline, something that I had done for scripts, you know, like usually that people require that she loved it and thought it was amazing. And so she said, let's, let's do this thing. And that was, I think that was June. That was like, I think it was June of 2010. Yeah, don't don't quote me on dates. Yeah, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. horrible, I'm horrible with weights and measures, but but yeah. So so that, that was yeah. It was early summer, and worked on the book all summer. And by end of August, we had a draft that we'd gone through and edited several times. And in September, that's when we took it out to she took it out to uh, to publishers. So the process was, you know, you know, I guess I guess all those years in the movie business did finally pay off because it, it got me a connection with a great literary agent, a great book agent. And that's how it all kind of came together. Got it. 
So what was the biggest difference you found between all those years of writing scripts and treatments and, and then sitting down and writing a novel? The biggest difference, just on an emotional level, is enjoying writing versus hating writing. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer who, like, I'm compelled to write. I've, I've been writing since I was eight years old. And, and, I, and I always loved it when I was younger, you know, when I would write pose, prose and poetry. I've written a lot of poetry, um, mainly because I never had time to do anything else. But, but over the years, that's what I enjoyed. And then I, I got into the movie business because my dad, you know, was like, you're never going to make any damn money as a writer. And so I was like, oh, how can I make some money doing this? And so the movie, and I love movies. So I thought, well, that's the perfect thing. You know, I can write for movies or TV. And then I can make my parents proud and <laughs> all that stuff, you know? And so, but, but I, but really like the, the movie business really made me hate writing because, you know, the, the thing about art, it, it, no matter what it is, is the more people that are involved, the, the worse it gets, you know, it's like the art by committee thing. And the movie business is, is the pinnacle of that. So, like, you, as a writer, you're at the you're at the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, literally, I think craft services is like one notch above you. <laughs> you know, so you're so no one cares about you, even if you're a mil, even if you're one of these million dollar like rewrite people. No one even knows those people's names. No, no one they they get barely get any accolades or anything. But but worse than that, in the creative process, they're really not they're really not uh, considered at all because, you know, film is a director's medium period, you know? So, um, so basically like, and, and also the, the, you know, the working within film narrative is very structured and controlled um, just format wise. You know, like if you're, if you're trying to tell a, a not, if, if you're not doing experimental film, if you're trying to tell like what would be something you'd see in a movie theater there's a structure to that, that that you need to adhere to to some degree. But beyond that, the, the movie business, because it's become so conservative, they actually also put a layer of creative structure on it. So like heroes can only do this and that, and they can't do this, and they can never say this, and they can never actually do certain actions because they that Hollywood has their idea of what, what a hero is or what a, better yet, what a protagonist is. So it's wildly constraining. And and once you think okay, I've, I've kind of figured this out, and you're doing it, then you get then you start working with a committee of people, who none of them agree, and it's all, and art is like so incredibly subjective. So in the in the end, it becomes a total mess. You know, I don't see honestly, I don't see how any movies get made at all. Uh, <laughs> it's just like it, honestly, it's like it, like not even like, it's it's funny, but also it's kind of not funny because I literally could write a book about about creative projects and what an incredible shit show they became and how they started out as something great and just, just devolved into a, a total mess, you know? So, so that all speaks to like the enjoyment of the craft. And so I would say just, you know, on a life level on an emotional level, writing books, I love, I mean, like I never thought I would say that I love to write again, but I love it so much. And it's not because I have, you know, like total creative control and I'm some kind of like egomaniacal, you know, like Napoleonic, you know, leader when it comes to that. But, but I do, I do like to be able to express myself as freely as possible without, without a lot of interference from other people. Um, 
and and I, I love working with my editor, you know, because basically the the difference with like you know like if you're if you write a script and you, and it's going around it's doing the rounds with the committee, you know, they're basically changing everything you do without many times without even asking you. Right. Editor book editors they respect your work, you know their 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 motto or their 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 whole goal their mandate is to make sure that you are publishing the best expression of what you are trying to express versus them trying to say, you know, I think it'd be better instead of an assassin, he's a female photographer. You know, like that's what the movie business is. And they all think, oh, that's not a big change. You know, what's wrong with that, you know? So, I don't know, like, it's it's just, it's an, it's it's all about, like, loving the craft again. It's like, um, and if, if people want to really get an idea of what I'm talking about with the movie business, they should read uh, Goldman's book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, because it's the, it's the perfect, even though it's, it's a bit dated because he talks about older movies, it's still all the same. It's still the, a perfect example of how that, how that situation goes down yeah. in the movie business. Yeah. Uh, so are you planning to write more John Lago novels? Yes, I'm planning to do that. Um, I don't... What's unclear is is whether you know is is the publishing of those because I mean basically Simon Schuster you know they're they're seeing how these do you know they're seeing how how they're how they're accepted obviously how well they sell things like that and and they put I you know I'm very happy with the the faith that they put into them I mean I know for I know from talking to a lot of the authors you know for them to Greenlight a second book uh, with, with the first book barely even being out very long um, was took a lot of faith on their part and I appreciate that. Um, so in the end, the answer is I I will not stop writing John Lago books. Um, I'm hoping that that Simon, that we you know with Simon and Schuster we can continue you know doing this. Um, but I think if they were if they were to determine that it isn't uh, you know necessarily like a profitable sure. venture for them, um, I think I would still continue doing it because I really do love this character. I feel like I have a lot of I feel like I have a lot of scenarios. I uh, for I know for a fact I've got at least six you know more books you know book concepts that, that I could start on tomorrow. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I'd like to do offshoots, you know, like a lot of people on the book tour this time around have said, you know, you really should write an Alice book. <laughs> and I've, I've thought about that before, but, but the more I hear people asking for it, the more I think it would be really cool. Um, cause I do love that character and, you know, there isn't, there isn't a lot of, in, in both books, there's not, there isn't a lot of information about her and her past. So I think it'd be really fun to, to delve into that. Um, so yeah, I think it's for me. It'll, for me, it's it's going to live on until I run out of ideas. Right. You know? right. Well, <laughs> so. well, I I wondered. You mentioned earlier about always liking assassins and the assassin genre. Are are there films or books or authors that specifically inspired yeah. you when you were working on um, the the two novels, Interns Handbook and Hostile Takeover? Yeah, I think. Um, if I'm going to, you know, for me, film is, is a far bigger influence when it comes to genre uh, than books, because the way I consume books is totally different. You know, I read a lot of Chuck Palahniuk and, 
and Kurt Vonnegut. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily go for thrillers and, and genre books, um, you know, in that world. But for, in, for, for assassin stories, um, it's movies for me that have the most impact. Um, and my, my favorites are The Professional and La Femme Nikita. And I have to throw I have to throw the Day of the Jackal in there too because I love the spectrum of the if you take those three films uh, I love that spectrum that it offers because you have the Day of the Jackal which is um, a very not I don't want to say typical but it's like it's a very real kind of like okay this is and it's based on something real you know so it's like so it's it's a very real interpretation of what an assassin how an assassin would operate. Right. You know, it's, it's methodical uh, and there's nothing all that exciting about it. You know, if you see that movie, it's, it's, there are exciting moments, but it's very methodical uh, type of thing to watch because that's how it, that's how in, in the real world, that's how it would have to be. You know, if you're going to kill Charles de Gaulle, you know, there were, that's how, that's how someone, that's how an assassin would have to approach it. And so I love the realism um, of that, of that particular film. And then you get into the professional where you're getting, you you're sort of like exiting uh, realism a little bit, but you still, you still are grounded to some extent. Um, and also the, what I love about, about the, um, the character in that film is that, is that he is the blank slate, you know, like you see, you see those scenes where he's basically like got nothing in his apartment and he's, you know, like, in, kind of invented himself. But he's got this one talent, which is a great, which is like a very, you know, high-level version of that talent. And and I like the, I, you know, I think what I really took away from the, the professional is the go is the assassin as ghost concept, which makes perfect sense to me because, you know, like the, the thing about James Bond, obviously, he's not an assassin, but. You know, it's very difficult to be covert when you're going around telling telling everyone your name, you know, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so what I love about um, that character is that he says, you know, like when you're really good at this, uh, you use a knife because no one can see you coming. So, I think you know there are some crazy, definitely some some you know stepping outside of real realism in that movie. But at the same time, I think the character, the portrayal of the assassins, is very grounded. But then you get into La Femme Nikita. And what I really liked, I mean, that, that just kind of like blew my mind because I loved how, you know, like I love the stories where quote unquote nor- normal citizens become transformed into something like this. And it was, it's an interesting way, the way Nikita becomes what she is. Um, that's a very interesting process too, you know, like the drug addict, you know, drugstore cowboy, cowgirl you know, type, type thing. Um, to this, to this assassin, but the, I love how like they're, you know, because she's a quote unquote normal person, you know, unlike those other two characters, uh, she still has her emotions, you know, she still is, is that, that normal person emotionally. So you see what it does to her. You see like how it, how it's just like, you know, like the scene where she's just like, her, her boyfriend is out, out, in the hotel room, she's in the bathroom about ready to shoot someone with this incredibly bizarre, you know, rifle that was hidden under the sink or whatever, you know, she's, she's sobbing while she's doing it. You know, it's like, I love that because, um, because of that, because she's like, you know, she's a real person 
she had she had a chance to become a real person and then and then became an assassin. So so I think all of those that to me that represents the sort of spectrum of things because I think they all those movies you know have what I love about how the assassin is very powerful is like this kind of all powerful person. Um, but at the same time, there are levels of that and. And Nikita really, like the first, like the professional in Day of the Jackal, are what you'd expect of an assassin character. Even those are great, those are great films, but Nikita is totally unexpected, and that I think that kind of opened the door for a lot of different types of movies and books that that could explore that. So, it, and it definitely it definitely was was something for me too because, you know, when I was thinking about John, I was really I was I was thinking about Nikita quite a bit. And how you know that there are similarities there, at least in terms of them both having somewhat emotional life, and having you know, in being in this in this um, in this profession, and what it's done to them uh, over over time. That's great. Um, what's the status of the interns' handbook movie? Um, currently, they a, a couple of drafts of the script have been written and they're looking for uh, a director and over the past few, over the past like probably three months, they've been the studio and also original film, Neil Lewis's company. Um, they've been interviewing directors. A lot of directors really want to do this, this movie. They, you know, and usually it's those who've read the book. Uh, and so they, so they've been through this, it's kind of funny. It's like, they've been through this kind of interview process where a lot of these directors <laughs> whose names I, t- I recognize, um, you know, they're actually kind of like doing little presentations in the office and things like that to try to get the gig. So that's pretty cool. Um, but they've narrowed it down to two candidates. I'm not allowed to say who they are right okay. now. Unfortunately, yeah. I wish I could, but, <laughs> but I can tell you that they're, they're very accomplished filmmakers. Um, and I, I, I know their work and I think, I think their work is excellent. Um, and it would be, it would be great to have either of them do it. You know, it'd be, it'd be very cool to have either of them do it. Um, so basically it's kind of like, I guess, I guess the decision is, is going to come down to the studio and the, the studio and the producers are all debating which person to choose. So again, back to the committee, <laughs> um, <laughs> The committee is deciding on who will, who will direct. But I've been told that um, there's a strong possibility they'll, they will have chosen somebody by the end of the summer, by the end of August. Um, and knowing Neil, because I know Neil from other projects, uh, Neil Moritz, I, I believe it to a certain extent, because Neil doesn't mess around. You know, when he has a project, he gets it made, you know, like, and, and he's, that's what he's really working hard to do right now. So once that happens, once they choose a director, it's going to, it'll be a big, it'll be a game changer because basically even though the script is, you know, a script has been written, you know, what will probably happen often does is the director will come in and just do their own rewrites, Um, which I'm kind of hoping, I'm kind of hoping they do because uh, in my opinion, the script is not faithful to the book. I think there are there are there are parts of it on a conceptual level that that have you know that share sort of similarities with the book, 
but in my opinion, it's too different. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if you're, if you've read the book and you see the movie, I think the experience will be too different. You know, and I'm, I'm not a fan of that when I'm, when I, you know, as a, as a, a person who loves, you know, like reading a book and then seeing the movie, although we can all agree, oftentimes it's a very disappointing process. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, for instance, Fight Club, you know, I love the book and I love the movie. I need to like the movie even more. Um, but they're, but they're, they're in step with each other. I mean, yeah. definitely David, David Fincher took a few liberties here and there, but I didn't feel alienated from the book when I saw the movie. Sure. And so what I've told, what I've told the studio and I've told, you know, they asked my opinion, even though my opinion probably doesn't really matter that much, um, which is odd, right? So, <laughs> so that, you know, it, when I've expressed my opinion, um, I've just said, you know, I would really love to, um, I'd really love for this to be a lot closer to the book because, um, you know, the, what's, that's kind of the point of doing this, right? You know, it's like, if you, if you guys really do love the book and, and you're motivated to make the movie, why don't we make it a lot more like the book, um, which is really not that difficult to do because I wrote the book in a three-act structure. So, and I, and I also have an outline that I've sent to them that, is what, that, shows, that shows that and shows the, the story beats and how it could be structured easily to a script. But it's the committee, so, you know, they just, they do the things, they do, they do things the way do, they do them. And all I can really do is sit back and hope that, um, that the end result is, uh, is as close as possible to the book. But that's, that's where we are in the process is, um, is narrowing it down to a director. Um, and once that happens, it, you know, it'll, it'll kind of really open things up in terms of getting, um, getting us on a faster track to production. Great. Well, fingers crossed on, on the choice of a director. And um, again, yeah. we've been, again, we've been speaking with Shane Kuhn, author of Hostile Takeover, a brand new thriller novel. Go grab a copy today. And Shane, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.